From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. From Pop Warner Youth Football Leagues to collegiate hockey and the NFL, brain injury and the implications of repetitive concussions are a growing concern. With modern MRI technologies, researchers are able to detect important structural changes in the brain that result from these injuries. Dr. Alex Lin and his colleagues at Brigham and Women's Hospital are expanding their patient population and their technologies to see a clearer picture. Using functional magnetic resonance spectroscopy, they hope to better understand brain chemistry while also examining the effects of traumatic brain injury on populations of vulnerable individuals that have gone understudied. Dr. Alex Lin is an assistant professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Clinical Spectroscopy in the Department of Radiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Lin, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So um, you've been on the show before, and um, for listeners that didn't hear your first episode, maybe you could just um, uh, refresh our memory and explain briefly what your work centers around. Sure. So I, I'm the director of the Center for Clinical Spectroscopy at Brigham Women's Hospital in the Department of Radiology, and our focus is looking at measuring brain chemistry uh, using a method called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, or what I like calling a virtual biopsy, because it gives us an ability to non-invasively examine chemistry in the brain without having to do any kind of surgical intervention or anything uh, along those lines. Uh, And so we've focused this method uh, primarily on traumatic brain injury. Uh, So we've been studying uh, NFL players, soccer players, ice hockey players, uh, and all sorts of different types of sports to try to better understand what are the effects of concussion or repetitive concussion on the brain. We've published quite a few papers in the area of uh, the football player's health study, uh, mainly uh, looking at the results coming back from what we call the DTECH study. It was an R01, uh, NIH-funded R01 study that uh, with Boston University that looked at about 100 football players. Mm-hmm. And so the results of that study are now becoming uh, you know, public by uh, nature of our, our publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just recently just had this paper accepted looking at some of the biochemical changes that occur in those football players. And we're seeing certainly different patterns of injury that mm-hmm. are emerging as a result of that. And I think one of the things we're starting to understand is that CTE or chronic traumatic, uh, chronic, uh, chronic, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is definitely a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. It's not something, uh, it's not just as simple as you get head injuries and you're going to develop this disease. Um, and so we're trying to better understand what is it that goes to developing this disease. Uh, and also, the presentation of the disease is not something that is simple either. Mm-hmm. I think people typically think of it as a disease where it's neurodegenerative, you get memory loss, um, problems with anger management, those kind of things. But mm-hmm. what we're finding is that there's actually many different components to it. Um, there's both a, a mood behavior component as well as a more neurocognitive, neurodegenerative kind of component. And that's one of the things we're studying now is can we get a better 
way of using the brain chemistry to better understand these differences, uh, even amongst the, the CTE population itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, uh, we're using machine learning methods there to try to better understand what are the correlations uh, between brain chemistry and these different functions of CTE as a disease. And so we're, we're definitely moving that further to, to better understand things. We also have uh, ongoing studies now looking at trying to expand this uh, study into other areas where we have some new technology. So one of the biggest things that we've had at Brigham uh, recently is the advent of a new 7 Tesla MRI machine. So typically most MRI machines are around 3 Tesla. Uh, so this is more than double the field strength. And what that offers us is a, a way to improve the resolution of our images as well as the resolution that we get with spectroscopy. And so we can look at a number of different aspects of chemistry that we weren't able to look at before. Uh, I think one of the really exciting uh, things that we've done recently is developing uh, what we call a functional spectroscopy method. So you've probably heard of functional MRI mm -hmm. where you have different areas of the brain that light up as a result of uh, you know, uh, different uh, processes that uh, one will study. Uh, and that's mostly what we call a bold effect or, or blood related effect. Um, and what we're really interested in is trying to see, do those things activate different chemical changes now in the brain? And so that's uh, one of the new things that we've developed to advance that field. And so using spectroscopy, you're measuring the, the uh, level of different chemicals as opposed to MRI, which um, cannot, can't see chemical that measures more structural. That's correct. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And I think they're very highly complementary to one another. Uh, the structural changes that one sees, for example, in some of the early studies we published, uh, uh, changes uh, uh, something called cavum septum pellucida, where the there's a splitting of the membranes uh, by the ventricles, uh, to the diffusion tensor imaging changes, where you see different patterns of uh, fractional anisotropy and um, the fiber tracts that are within the brain, that certainly show differences. And I think what the spectroscopy does to try to complement that is to also examine some of the pathophysiological changes that are driving these structural changes. So the chemistry hopefully will help inform the imaging. Mm -hmm. So um, so right now, how much is understood about what, how much chemistry impacts structure? I think it's still, we're definitely, you know, it's still in the process of, of trying to better understand what's going on. Uh, you know, we are just now starting to correlate the, the two, uh, and those are ongoing studies that are still... Um, you know, we're still working on the data. Uh, but we're certainly, for example, seeing changes uh, in, uh, in neuroinflammation uh, that I mentioned earlier that seem to correlate with the changes that we see in the imaging. Uh, and there's an early study um, that we, we showed at the International Brain Injury Association where we find the DTI changes are very much um, correlated with some of the spectroscopy changes. And that tells us that, you know, the structural changes that we're seeing are a result of some of the underlying pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. And with that information, as you start to learn more about um, the pathophysiology and how that impacts structure, what could you see down the road or what do you imagine for treatments that could possibly intervene? That's a great question. I think that's one of the, certainly the, the next big area that the the brain injury research needs to go is, is exactly, you know, fine. You know, once we can identify some of these changes, you know, we can then use these as biomarkers for treatment uh, and monitoring treatment. So that's, I think, you know, one of the areas that we really would love to uh, explore is now that we identified some of these potential markers, 
what can we now use in terms of uh, drug treatments to look at them. Mm-hmm. And um, the studies that you've done, have they, um, I want to talk about the work you're doing with traumatic brain injury and gender difference, because I think it's really interesting and an area that you don't hear a lot about. I think a lot of the studies focus on men. Right. Um, and But you are looking at uh, women and the difference in traumatic brain injuries between men and women. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, with the football player study, uh, we're just looking at men, right? It, it's it's really prim- primarily a, a men's sport. Uh, and so when we started looking at other sports, for example, collegiate ice hockey, uh, we now fun- suddenly you know had access to a population that was both men and women, uh, and we had the data that allowed us to, to examine that. And so that we just recently, last year, published a paper looking at some of the differences in brain chemistry between men and women. And what we're finding are that you know there are certain similarities. So, for example, both preseason and postseason, we see similar changes in men and women uh, when it comes to uh, changes in, in what I mentioned earlier, uh, N-acetylspartate, which is kind of a neuronal marker. So that tells us and confirms some of the previous findings that during the season of play, there's definitely some kind of subconcussive injuries that are occurring that's driving that. But when we looked at other chemicals, for example, glutamate, uh, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, in men, preseason to postseason, it increased. That's something that we've known for you know a number of different studies that glutamate increases as a result of, of brain injury or exposure to brain injury. Uh, but in women, it actually decreased. Um, and what we also found was that women also had a starting higher level of glutamate than men did. And so clearly, there's a different impact on the, the brain depending on you know gender uh, mm-hmm. specificity. And that really, th- with that pilot data, we then um, applied for an NIH grant where we're looking at uh, Harvard College athletes. And that grant completely focuses now on the gender differences. So the whole idea is to recruit men and women and, and particularly in sports where um, the similarities are, are, are better. So, for example, in uh, collegiate ho- ice hockey, there are differences in the way that ice hockey is played, whether um, it's a, you know, playing male or female, uh, particularly with checking. Um, and so there you don't know, okay, is it because there's a difference in play that we're seeing some of these differences or is it truly gender differences? Whereas you have other uh, games like soccer um, where – I think male and female participation is is much more sim- is much similar or more similar, and so we can therefore now start really getting at some of the gender differences that are occurring there. And you, um, the chemical you mentioned, glutamate, um, you said it's an excitatory neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. What function does that perform in the brain, and why why do you think that there's differences in levels between men and women? Yeah, so it, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's it's one of the probably the most uh, predominant uh, excitatory uh, neurotransmitters that's available in the brain. Uh, much of the body's uh, metabolism goes to supporting that uh, process, and the differences that we see in men and women, we think, uh, and we're still working on the studies to to prove this, um, might be governed more by hormonal differences um, and changes uh, in, in the in the body. And that eventually, obviously, affects the brain as well. And what we've always thought of glutamate before, um, uh, from a brain energy perspective, was that we know that with each hit, glutamate increases, uh, but then it kind of goes back down. But then with more subsequent hits, that glutamate level seems to rise, and then it becomes to the point where it, uh, when you have too much glutamate in the brain, it becomes neurotoxic and starts killing off brain cells. And that's something we saw in our football players as a pattern. But in women, obviously, there's something very different. And 
what we think is that there are the different hormonal processes, and you know, people have studied this in, in other areas, where the, the female hormones can potentially be neuroprotective uh, and, and benefit them. There's also other stages in which the women, uh, the hormones actually might be more damaging. Uh, and so one of the things we're studying in our current study is depending on what stage of the um, menstrual cycle, the hormone levels are obviously going to differ, if that injury occurs uh, during the fallucial stage or in, in other stages of the menstrual cycle, those hormone levels will, will change and um, that could potentially be the reason why some women are more impacted than, than others. And there have been some other studies uh, that uh, have supported this kind of theory. So a lot of your the studies you've talked about focus on athletes, but I know you're also looking at, another, at other ways that people suffer brain injuries and one of them is domestic violence. Um, could you talk about that? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think you know one of the things that once we started transitioning over from sports and then to gender differences, we quickly realized that the you know you know it's really a very unex, un, unexplored area, um, and uh, it really was an eye opener to look at domestic violence and the incidence of, of brain injury in women. Uh, that um, you know it's known that one about one in three women experience some type of intimate partner violence. So the populations we're looking at now are much, much larger than what we're seeing in sports-related head injury. Uh, and the prevalence of brain injury in these women is, is devastating. Um, one of the things that, uh, one of the studies, recent studies that have been published looking at uh, a very select population of intimate partner violence and is um, looking at uh, uh, trafficked women. Uh, and there were reports in that study of uh, one woman reporting over 100 concussions that she suffered uh, during uh, that period of her life. And that made me realize that, you know, this, you know we're, we're studying the same type of things, right? We're looking at repetitive concussion, uh, and, but we've never looked at it in the case of uh, intimate partner violence. Uh, and that's an area that we literally uh, just got funded by the Women's Brain Initiative over at Brigham to start studying this population. And I think it'll be... Really interesting to explore this and see how the changes we're seeing uh, that we mentioned earlier in football players might either resemble or maybe not resemble, you know, what's going on in domestic violence. And will it inform us whether or not these women, for example, might be at risk for developing chronic traumatic encephalopathy as a result of all these head injuries? I think those are things that people don't don't think about. Um, and, and sadly, I think we're just beginning to realize now um, the high incidence of this and, and the prevalence of the, the concussions that could potentially play into this. Talk more about the, the lack of awareness about these injuries, if you can. You said that you had seen previous published studies, but how recent are those studies? Yeah, no, I think those, all those studies are very, very recent in the past year or two. Uh, and there are more and more studies coming out now that are beginning to better characterize what's going on in, uh, in intimate partner violence. Um, you know, I, I think looking at it from the perspective of someone who came in in the traumatic brain injury field, you know, you first think of traumatic brain injury mostly as, you know, motor vehicle accidents, uh, those kind of things. Um, and then you think about sports. Uh, but, you know, domestic violence was never something that ever really came up before. And I have to say, I was introduced to it um, largely because I was involved in an organization called Pink Concussions, uh, which is a uh, organization that, that really tries to bring uh, prominence to the the fate of um, concussions in in women, and they too, you know, when we first started the 
the the conferences you know did focus a lot on you know you know military uh, brain injury or sports related brain injury and just more recently they've been bringing in uh, IPV as uh, one of the major areas that mm-hmm. um, needs to be studied and I think a lot of brain injury researchers are suddenly realizing holy cow this is an area we completely missed uh, if you look at the literature there's there's virtually I, I there maybe two papers out there um, that have looked at neuroimaging in IPV. Um, and so clearly this is very, very much understudied compared to say sports related head injury where now there's, you know, hundreds of papers. You mentioned pink concussions. Could you talk more about that? Yeah. Pink concussions is a group started by Katherine Snedeker, um, probably about six or seven years ago. I remember going to the first conference, um, where I was, I was invited to speak and, um, she's really been the driving force. Be- I mean, just incredible bringing in people, from all aspects of brain injury, uh, whether it be, like I said, sports, military, or IPV, uh, and getting them together uh, at all the major brain injury conferences uh, to look at what's going on in in um, in, in in these uh, in women, uh, and I think first she really brought awareness to the fact that all these sports studies that we were looking at were all in men and never in women, and so you know that was the next part where she brought in a lot of women. Um, to be involved in these brain injury studies, uh, and that I think brought a lot of prominence to it. And then, you know, as I said, recently more transitioning to things like domestic violence and bringing those kind of topics into play. Uh, she had a conference just several months ago where she brought in um, victims of intimate partner violence to describe the kind of uh, just horrendous, you know, situations they'd be in. And it, it makes you realize as a TBI researcher that there's so much more that needs to be explored and understood here. Um, these women need to be studied. They, they need to, we need to get a better understanding because, you know, we talk about underreporting in football play, right? You know, these guys who are macho and don't want to say, hey, I got a concussion to be taken out of field of play. This is a completely different kind of underreporting where, you know, women are just terrified to mm-hmm. report uh, any kind of injury. And, you know, with brain injury being called the invisible injury, this becomes even a greater problem because unlike you know broken bones or bruises or or things that may be a little bit more indicative of, of what's going on in domestic violence, uh, brain injury is not something you see. Uh, and that's uh, to be able to bring some light to that and, and hopefully use these more advanced neuroimaging methods to, to better understand what's going on or to be able to characterize that, I think will be really important. Mm-hmm. And um, you said earlier that you became interested in the gender differences when you started looking at hockey players. What role did your colleague bringing these people in to conferences and, you know, giving this issue um, a spotlight, what role did that play in getting people, making people aware of these issues? Certainly in terms of, I, you know, in my life, um, it was an eye-opener. When, when I went to that first pink concussion conference, I sat there and realized, whoa, you know, this is an area that I, I just had not ex- explored before. Um, and, you know, to be honest, it, it brought personal relevance to it too. I've got two daughters. They both are involved in, you know, sports activities. And it made me realize that, uh, you know, here I am studying all of these male football players, and yeah. I, I could speak nothing to whether or not they, if they have a concussion, what would happen with them. Um, you know, what, there was a number of different instances that that really helped drive me towards that. I think certainly pink concussions was was one large part of it, but I do remember a case uh, over at Children's Hospital where we scanned uh, one of the um, sports-related concussions in a young girl, and um, she was a soccer player 
uh, ran into another soccer player head on, um, was concussed and, you know, it was incredible. She was an A student who now couldn't even concentrate for more than half an hour. And, you know, having met her, uh, in person, you know, she was desperate to, to try to get back into school and, and, you know, sort of the opposite of what you think of most students, you know, most students will be like, Hey, if I can skip school for <laughs> a couple months, great, you know, so, so much better. But she was really struggling to, to really try to get back into things. And um, it made me realize that uh, there are differences in the way um, people recover from TBIs. and From just person to person. From person to person. Yeah. And you know, then after exploring the literature, realizing that in, in many ways, girls actually take much longer than, than boys to recover from brain injury. Um, there's also the prevalence that, you know, Girls report more injury than than boys do, um, and so it makes it you know a little bit different to try to understand this population, um, all these different factors that you really need to take gender into consideration. I mean, if you were to just group them all together, uh, you know, it really wouldn't make sense. You have to really separate them out and and be able to better understand what's going on specifically in in women uh, that's different from men. So, how long would um, say a student who is an athlete gets injured? concussed how long does that recovery process typically take uh it takes anywhere from a couple weeks to to about three months um that's generally the you know most concussions recover uh by about the three month uh period and what they were finding was that you know in girls that that was much you know was a bit bit more extended than that Mm -hmm. that you know would take sometimes four months six um, you know sometimes up to six months uh for full recovery to half a school year i mean exactly right uh yeah yeah and you don't think about that that to a to a a kid that's uh, that's a really big part of yeah, their life like 10 percent of their life right yeah. exactly yeah. um so yeah it, it was it was really inc- incredible that uh we didn't realize that there was this difference mm-hmm. uh, and how much of an impact it can make looking forward you've received a grant to study intimate partner violence where do you hope that um you can take this work in the future yeah that's no, a great question um i think uh for one being able to use once we identify again those 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 appropriate biomarkers for uh, brain injury in IPV, using that to potentially use as a, a diagnostic test, um, because of the the, the big problem with IPV is that um, you don't know whether these women have concussions or not, mm. um, and I think that would be something I could see in the future would be really valuable as someone who um, undergoes. Uh, you know, is is has uh, you know an experience with IPV uh, that one can then utilize this technique to see. Okay, well, what's the extent of this brain injury? And you know, sometimes it's it, which is not to say it's not that it's unreported, but a lot of times women uh, or people in general don't realize that you know these concussions have such a major impact. Mm-hmm. Getting a better understanding of of what's going on in the brain um, as a result of this will help better understand those processes. Dr. Lin, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Next time on Think Research. One of the things that's really challenging is to study allergy in America. We put medication allergies in what we call the allergy section of the health record, and that's pretty unreliable, and there's no national data set of allergy records. So I really wanted to be able to make projections that were generalizable for the U.S. rather than local. We hear from Dr. Kim Blumenthal of Massachusetts General Hospital on how penicillin allergies are often misunderstood and overdiagnosed. Thank you for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.